And so the importance of understanding Tuta Tango is that we need to listen. It's not just we need to do it all right by the script on Instagram. We need to also listen to our greatest teacher, who is us inside, what we feel, what's happening in our body, what's happening in our mind, but also our baby or our child. What are they telling us? What's their body telling us? What are their words telling us? What are their faces telling us as often as possible? I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. Today, I am sitting with Dr. Tanya Kotler, and I'm so excited to be sharing this episode with you. We are talking all about attachment, understanding relationships with our kids and ourselves, and how we can build a strong and healthy connection. On the heels of my book, Getting Into Your Hands, this is such a timely conversation. Dr. Kotler and I both come to the table as psychologists. We're both in Ontario. She's in Toronto. I'm in Ottawa. With an understanding that our relationships are so important to us. We both come from an attachment theory background and looking to build healthy separation and differentiation. Okay, now if you're looking for more on stories of real-life couples who are trying to heal old wounds and build a healthy relationship, be sure to grab your copy of my new book, I didn't sign up for this. How many of us have said that? I know I have found myself saying it and found myself sitting in front of so many clients who were echoing those very words. I'm loving seeing your reviews, your DMs, where my book is going with you. It means so much to me. The most common thing I'm hearing from you is that already within the first few chapters, you are having many aha moments about your own patterns and dynamics in your life and that you feel seen and that you feel validated. And that for me tells me that the goal of this book, the goal to remove the shame of the struggles we experience in our most important relationships and to help others feel seen is being met. So thank you for being with me on this journey. Okay, let me tell you about today's guest. Dr. Kotler is a distinguished psychologist specializing in reproductive and maternal mental health. She brings a mindful and integrative approach to her practice. With a keen focus on uncovering your origin story, she empowers you to navigate the present without the burden of past pain. Dr. Kotler has nearly two decades of clinical experience across various mental health settings, including emergency rooms, inpatient units, and outpatient care. She has presented at both both national and international conferences and conducts trainings and conferences for parents, professionals, and educators regarding her expertise in reproductive mental health, emotion regulation, and the parent-child bond. 
As an author, Dr. Kotler writes a regular column for Psychology Today, Motherhood Made Real, and has published a number of other works on maternal mental health and parent-child attachment. In her clinical practice, Dr. Kotler provides individual and group therapy for adults and play therapy and parent-infant psychotherapy for children and infants. She is also the co-founder of Rennie, an esteemed integrative mental health clinic in Toronto. And additionally, she is currently working on a non-fiction book, which, unlike the plethora of how-to guides to parenting, delves deeper into the unexplored territory of maternal mental health specifically focusing on the interplay between perinatal mental health and unresolved childhood trauma. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I loved having this conversation. And of course, as always, if you haven't yet, please leave me a review. Let me know what you think of the episode. Send me a DM after, take a screenshot of the episode and share it to your social. Be sure to tag me. Okay, let's go into today's episode. Dr. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. I am so excited that we are finally sitting here today together to have this conversation. I'm so excited as well. Thank you for having me, Tracy. And just to even mark this, so I don't share official birthdays on the internet, and this will be shared a few weeks from now, so I get to share this, but we're actually sitting today on my daughter's birthday. So today is the birth of me as a mom to two. And I think our conversation is just, oh, it's just going to move me. I know we're going to go into a really powerful place and a place where I think people really need to sit in. So thank you for doing this with me. I just got shivers. I always say to moms, not even first time moms, on the birthday, my favorite line is, you know, happy birthing yourself day, which I'm sure we'll get into, but really it is that too. So happy birthing yourself day, as well as becoming a mother day and happy birthday to your daughter. Yeah, oh, thank you. Why don't we tell the listeners a little bit about you and how you came to do the work that you're doing? Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist. I work with both children and adults. I have been doing this thing for just under 20 years, but my area of research and science when I got my doctorate was in the primary attachment relationship or attachment science, which I know we'll get into, and that relationship between parent and child. My clinical work, the work I was doing with patients, initially focused on children. I worked with children inner city, worked in children who were hospitalized with more severe mental health. I worked with children in Head Start programs. And something that I realized was whenever I worked with a child, I needed to work with the parent when it was possible. And when I worked with the parent, the inner child in the parent often was sharing a voice. There was almost a generational transmission of attachment. And so I became really interested in working in that kind of generational space, what we pass on, why we pass on, how we can maybe change that. And so I sought training in maternal mental health, in early childhood. I really honed in in that early phase of, you know, first three, four years of life, which we know is when that blueprint for attachment really gets formed. And I continue to work with parent, child, adult who's still reflecting on their own early childhood, kind of all those points of entry 
I continue to work from that angle in there. You, you mentioned how this generational narrative gets passed on and it, it shows up in the parents that you're working with and how that that really moves forward. And even when I think of my own journey, I think of that experience of shame when I would have one of those hard moments with the kids, or I can remember one um, moment that really stands out that stirred up this like part of me that I was like, whoa, I haven't seen this before. And yet it's so alive in me. And that is my son was crossing the road on his little um, pedal bike. And there was a car coming and I yelled, car, move, go. Right. So we get across the road. I think Greg was pushing the stroller with her daughter and my son like slams the bike down and yells back at me. And then I think eventually he gets back on it and we start going. But for myself, I was washed over with shame. And what I wanted to do in that was something that felt familiar for me in terms of maybe what I experienced or maybe what I witnessed which was I wanted to walk away, like I needed to escape. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of actually kind of chokes me up a little bit. But um, it, I, I, I had turned away. I'm like, I'm going back home. And Greg's like, no, stay. Stay with us. We're good. Let's keep working through this. And we'll keep going. There's I'm choked up here in your story. Because I can feel the feel you're holding because there's so much in that story, right? And so if we back up a little and this happens to all of us. So anyone who's listening, Tracy just shared the story. I can share stories as we go. It happens to all of us. And why it happens to all of us is what are we talking about? So when we talk about attachment, we're talking about, and I know Tracy, you see this and work with this in couples and I work with it in kind of parent-child dynamics. But what happens is we're talking about a system, an attachment system, just like your um, digestive system. Right. So we're talking about a system that is evolutionary. It's, it's in us. We become, we become hardwired to connect. So it's a connection system. We're born with it and we're born with the need to connect. We're born with the need to connect because it's uh, evolutionarily crucial for survival, right? Just like food, water, shelter, connection. And so 25% of our brains, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later because it's really important, 25% of our brains are formed. So we're not, as we initially thought, tabula rasa, blank slates. We come born. And one of the things we become born with is like, who's going to take care of me? And how am I going to connect? Who's going to get me the food and the shelter, right? And then in those first three years of life, that brain develops to 75%. Now, a lot of people who hear this can get anxious, you know, oh, that means that everything I do, those singular moments to your story that I feel shame because I, something happens in me, I respond in a way I wish I didn't. Oh no, you know, I'm now forming their attachment and it's unchangeable. No, two things can be true. So in those first three years of life, we are creating a blueprint for relationships. We carry the blueprint for our relationships from our ancestors, from our parent-child relationship. And our parents carried their blueprint from relationship from their parents. And it's changeable because our brain, you know, neuroplasticity, our brains want to change. So there are corrective experiences. So in your story, Greg is your corrective experience. Greg says to you, no, stay. Greg becomes a solid safety that says, we're okay. He gives you something different. 
But in that moment, what also lived there was something in your body, your body memory. And people often think, so I need to remember everything. I don't remember my childhood. No, you don't. Your body remembers though. Your body will hold templates. Your body will hold the blueprints. And sometimes you will therefore respond without conscious thought. And you may, and that feels not great when it goes against what we want, but that's due to that blueprint. And so that's what happened to you, right? Maybe within me walking away, even just the desire to do it lived in me. That's what happened maybe to me in high intense moments. And so in a high intense moment, I go there. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's zocdoccom slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. 
For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using loop engage to help dampen the sound around me, and these loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code Loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. The other thing that is really important to understand, and my reason for working really in this pivotal point of entry of early parenting, is that it's a particularly sensitive period to that reawakening stuff. And that's because the attachment system, that evolutionary system, forms primarily around distress. So we form the connection in stress. It's that idea of how do people respond to me? Who can I trust? Am I lovable? Am I safe? Particularly in distress. So in times of distress, and parenting is super, excuse my language, fucking stressful. It's a heightened stressor, right? And so it gets activated. Those moments where our kids are screaming in the backseat of the car, it's not a direct memory of us screaming in the backseat of a car, but it is a stressful event. And so how we respond in relationship, how we cope in relationships with stress gets activated. And so it's a heightened sensitive period where those early attachment strategies those ways of coping in relationships get triggered back up. Mm, I think that's so important what you're saying right there, because we often, especially with the use of social media and these really pretty tiles and the uh, therapy words being used that people will say, oh, this is just me being avoidantly attached. Oh, this is, oh, you're anxiously attached. And we are, we're using these labels without really understanding what attachment means. And so what you're saying right there is, so I, I really want people to take this part away is it activated in times of stress, that coping mechanism. Yes. Yeah. Coping. So the way I think of attachment, and honestly, if this is all people take away, I'll feel satisfied. The way I think about attachment really is I use the terms strategies, sometimes patterns. I don't use the term status for a reason. Status, you know, la language is very subjective. Status makes me feel like I'm making a mistake. If my, you know, secure is a higher status than insecure. Oh, you know, oh no, but it's not. These are strategies we developed to survive. Once upon a time, they were super important. So when someone says avoidant, first of all, they may not know what that means, but that may mean, for example, and it's on a continuum. 
So this means that it's not just a category of yes or no, that I may have had a pattern of coping or relating where I avoided my needs for connection. So it's a strategy where I went towards hyper-independence, perhaps. I've got it, I'm all good. Right? And sometimes you might hear some things I say and go, oh, I've got both. Yeah, cool. It's continuum and it's an axis. That's possible, mm-hmm. right? And so I developed the strategy because maybe there wasn't room for all my big feelings. Maybe I took care of others. Maybe I got a lot of reinforcement and connection when I was highly productive. Right or highly, you good. raise your hand. Well, or I know, I know. For I could too. too. I raise right? my hand. I could too. Yes. Here we are sitting with two PhDs. Like, let's call you know, spade a spade. I could too. I got reinforced for that, and in so many ways of my life, that's probably served me. Right? It's not all bad. Well, look it at was, where you are. Look at what you've done. Right? Yeah. Right. But it became a strategy for coping, and in sometimes it can have maladaptive. It cannot suit me, right? I can be over-functioning in my relationships, potentially. That may not be great. Yes. So that's what we're really talking about. And and in that moment, if I link that back to the story with my son, in that moment, that was the, I had a big feeling and then I wanted to shut it down and go deal with it on my own. Um, And that isn't going to work anymore in in our relationship, in my parent-child relationship and in the work I want to do with him and to teach him what it means to, to see me and to be connected. I love talking about attachment. And when we then shift from the parent-child dynamic, I'll add this for listeners. So then we think of our romantic relationship, which then, and again, if, if you are listening and you take this away, think of your your strategies as on a continuum. I think that's the piece that we miss because we love, as humans, we love black or white, all or nothing thinking. So it's like, of course, I'm anxiously attached. And now I can just understand that I'm always anxious. And that's not how we work. And that's not how we function. Not just within the world and our life, but also within different relationships so that we know attachment changes throughout the lifespan and it changes with different people. And it can change even within your partnership. And that was really cool research that came out of the bigger study from Dr. Sue Johnson with my PhD at the University of Ottawa, which is that we saw couples actually change their anxious attachment in throughout emotionally focused couples therapy, which is so powerful. So they do that work. But the piece in our romantic relationships that I wanted to add here is the not only the care seeking, so can I turn to you in times of stress? When I'm anxious, do I believe that you're going to be there for me? But then also the caregiving piece, that there's this element of how do I respond to you in your times of stress? And we can look at the attachment behaviors from both of those perspectives. Gracie, I I love how you frame that. And I think that one way we really are talking about this are what the blueprint is. We used to think the blueprint were what was referred to as working models of self and other. So can I trust you? And am I lovable? For example, am I worthy of love? Another way I'd like to describe it is that the blueprint is a dynamic. What we are actually blueprinting is the exchange, the relational pattern. So in a relationship where a person maybe doesn't tolerate emotion, I do what? And so we might have different patterning in different relational dynamics, and that becomes really important. The other piece you described 
is what I, you know, what has been referred to in the research, as you know, is that corrective experience aspect, right? That a partner can really be, for example, or a therapist, for example, a corrective experience. And what I think is often not understood or talked about enough and that our research is showing more and more, and I want to talk about this in terms of parent-child relationships, is what I refer to as it takes two to tango. So the relationships are also not one-sided. We understand that with partnerships. We understand that with friendships. But we kind of throw that out when it comes to parent-child relationships. Still, you know, all these pretty squares you described and Instagram often are still talking about the things we do for the benefit of the child. So we're still talking about it in a one direction way, right? Parent impacts child and the attachment pattern that develops is for the best, you know, developmental outcomes for the child. No, it's also for the best developmental outcomes for the mother or the father or the parent. It takes two to tango and they're constantly in dynamic, impacting one another, dancing with one another. So the child, remember hardwired with 25%, is coming into the relationship and they are seeking connection. So they are going to protest what they don't like that you do. They are going to regulate themselves. They are going to try to regulate you. They are in dynamic. There's a constant interchange. That should actually give people hope and calm down that it's all on me thing. It's actually all on your relationship. You and your child are working out this thing called your attachment, not just you to your child, so to speak. Is there an example that you could give for that? Because I I think this is such an important piece that we aren't seeing. And then it leads to what we'll talk about as well as all of this mom guilt and shame and trying to be the perfect mother rather than good enough and all of the parenting strategies that are showing up. So is there an example that you can think of? So I'll use what happened to me last night because it's, you know, recency effect and it's Mm -hmm. in my brain. And so last night I was very, very tired. Didn't prepare this example. So if it comes out muddied, sorry. We're good. And I was really tired and I decided I was going to go to bed. I decided, so that's an important portion of this story. I decided my need. I decided I'm going to go to bed at 8 p.m. I don't go to bed at 8 p.m. I'm a mother of three kids. It's not normally something that I do. I don't say, you know, everybody's going to get them to bed as best they can. Uh, My partner's here. Dad's doing bedtime. But otherwise, you know, peace out. I'm going to sleep. But I knew I was meeting with you early this morning. I knew I had a nine patient day. I knew it was wild and I was tired and I knew my needs were early bedtime. And so my older two are able to adjust to early bedtime. They read, daddy's there, no problem. My youngest, whose four was creating a fort in her bed using every pillow that exists in the household. And she was going to build this fort and it was going to fall and she's going to want to build it again and it was going to fall and she's going to want to build it again and it was going to fall and you all know how this goes. And I know all the perfect scripts that are on all those little squares on Instagram and I see you're having so much fun and the fort is so much fun and we're being so silly and we want to be in the fort all night and we'll get into this, I'm sure. But no reflective parenting script stuff was working. My needs and her needs were totally separate. And eventually I said, mom is going to bed, just kind of firmly, not the best assertion of boundaries and not the most reflective. It was just, I'm going to bed so I can put you to bed 
or I'm not here. And it was kind of one of those, all those things where you don't, we try not to do those threats. Like, I'm not going to put you to bed if I don't put you to bed now, all the ifs, but we're parents and we're human and we do that. And all of my humanness right now is like, oh, okay. You're okay, Tracy. You're you're doing okay. Yes. And we're going to talk about all that in so much more detail, why it's okay and why like the science for it's okay. But in this moment, the important part of Chuta Tango is my daughter goes, no, you don't go to bed. You put me to bed. And I said, her name, she called me back. I was being firm and annoyed. And then I was like, oh yeah, reflective parenting. Honey, I know you're having so much fun and you want to do this all day and blah, 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 blah. And why don't we, you know, and I created creative coping, go inside here and brush your teeth inside here. And then mommy will lie with you for a few minutes and then I'm going to go to bed and go to bed. And that was this little repair. And this one's a very easy one that I could use because it's quick and short. But the important part was she called me and it in some ways woke me up. It awakened me out of to the same version in your story, but it was your partner who did it. Mm -hmm. She kind of was like, hey, no, I'm not. We're not doing that. You're not just setting a boundary and piecing out. And our children do that. That's her at four. who, And she could articulate. But our babies do that from birth. They could turn their head. They regulate themselves. If you're too close to their face, hi, hi, hi. And they're like, I don't like that. They move their head the other way. There's actually a a lot of research on what's called chase behavior and looming. When a parent's face comes too close, the baby keeps moving. They are communicating. And so the importance of understanding two to tango is that we need to listen. It's not just we need to do it all right by the script on Instagram. We need to also listen to our greatest teacher, who is us inside, what we feel, what's happening in our body, what's happening in our mind but also our baby or our child. What are they telling us? What's their body telling us? What are their words telling us? What are their faces telling us? As often as possible, they are part of the relationship and they are guiding us. I'm just thinking about a similar experience the other day where I was tired. It was the end of the day and we're approaching bedtime and my daughter is just delaying getting out of the car as she does. And I said, so you're going to unbuckle yourself and then we'll both get out because we're learning to to try to get her to do some of she, she's she's a classic baby, a younger child. We're a little bit longer. She's needing Mm -hmm. more of our assistance. So we're doing that scaffolding to help her. Yes, I know it's hard. Try first and then I'll be there. And so she wasn't unbuckling. And so I said, I'm going to go inside. I'll see you inside. And then I went inside and she came in. This is kind of that like relational piece. She came in very upset. You left me in the car. And And so I didn't argue with her that moment and say like, well, you didn't listen. I said I was leaving. And so I left. Instead, I said, oh, wow. Yeah, I see. That was really upsetting for you. And it didn't feel good when I said, I'm going to leave. And I left. And and so it felt like that was that repair there and like that back and forth of here I am saying, I'm not going to hang out with you in the car for 20 more minutes while you decide not to get your buckles out. I'm going to go inside. And that was so distressing for her. But then I was able to see that distress and not have to rationalize or argue with it. I just, I could see it. Yeah, that is upsetting. It's really hard for you. I totally get that. Let's make sure we find a way through that next time so that that doesn't happen. 
Absolutely. And so how much responsibility on us if we think we have to do it all the time, we have to do it all the time correctly, right? And that it's all on us to come up with even what to say or what what is to do or what to feel or the whole gamut is on our shoulders. Mm. It's not. And I think that that's, to me, that's actually one of the biggest problems with the most beneficial generation that we're in. And I'll explain what I mean. Uh, yeah, let's do that. So this really beneficial generation of parenting that we're in is the generation of you know, compassionate parenting, reflective parenting, gentle parenting, conscious parenting, all these terms we've all heard. I am, I ascribe to all this parenting, attachment, science-informed parenting, call it what you want, mindful parenting. <laughs> what they're all about is really tuning into the child's mind. They're talking about the, what science is now, the 50 to 60 years we have of science, of attachment science, telling us that feeling felt feeling known, feeling understood is really important for the development of a sense of a secure self in the world of relationships. We all know that now, but we have to think about how what's happening is we are sent essentially as parents, myself, you jumping off a cliff where no generation of parenting has even dipped their toe. Science has only caught up. It's 40, 50. It's only catching up to our generation of parenting. That is a tremendous weight to, to know all this. But what's happening with that tremendous weight is that there's a lot of myths too. There's a lot of misunderstandings of what this means, what everything I just said, attuned parenting and compassionate parenting means. And one of the things, one of the myths that it, is around and really rampant is that we are expected to do this all the time. The second one is that it always works. So gentle parenting always works. All these scripts always work. We're supposed to do them all the time. And then the third major myth to me is that language concept again, gentle or compassionate, somehow meaning without boundary. So without saying, I'm getting out of the car, without saying, we're leaving, put your shoes on, without saying, I'm going to bed. And and sometimes those boundaries are absolutely part of, they're actually important part of compassionate, gentle, reflective parenting. So those three myths, to me, we can back up by science why they are myths and why parents are in both this, you know, really important generation of parenting but also feeling so much shame because they have all the science saying this is the way I'm supposed to be. And then all these myths are making them think they're doing it wrong. So Greg and I talk about this all the time of just how fast the information has come for us, the spread of it now compared to where we were 20 years ago. And even though the science has been there longer, right? But this Mm -hmm. wasn't accessible. That, That piece of shame of there's something so wrong with us and and not just about that but also because of how we were parented also I think feeds into that sense of shame I've talked about this before on the podcast so I apologize to listeners if I sound like a broken record but this was a really big piece for me in in my reparenting journey and in becoming a and being a parent I guess maybe I'm still always evolving and becoming it was a series of popular books 
from the 80s, published in 1983. That was a let's talk about. Do you remember them? Let's talk about sharing. Let's talk about like essentially good behavior. And (laughs) I remember loving these books. Actually, I wish I had brought them to the office today. Um, I haven't gotten rid of them because I just I just need to like be mad at them for a little bit. So they're in the basement <laughs> closet, but they're not being passed around. I will not donate. That's them. how I feel about the runaway bunny. <laughs> <laughs> so many of these books. Oh my goodness. And they, they did the best with the information they had. But the, the essence of this book was, um, you got hurt because you didn't listen to me. You're coming crying to me because I told you, if you don't share, people won't like you. And just reading those pages, I, I remember f- feeling very seen, validated, and also angry in some ways. Um, but then just to really reflect just how hard this work is for us. So in my eyes, when I refer to those three myths, what you're bringing up now, Tracy, fits with me in that third myth, the not setting boundaries one. And I think that that's because... So why... Don't we set boundaries, for example? Let's use that. Why all the myths, really? Well, because we're afraid. So you said earlier, we like things in categories. Human beings like things in categories, totally, especially when we're afraid, right? The more I understand what I'm supposed to do, the black or white, and the better I feel. The unknown of it makes me really uncomfortable. So we do that the moment a baby is born, right? We look at the baby's face and we go, Oh my God, look, it has a nose of like its father. And oh, he's look at that funny face. They're just like, they're funny like their mother, right? We right away project. And there's nothing, if you're hearing that going, oh, should I not do that? No, I did that. We all do that. It's human nature because we want to know. We want to know the being. We want to know how to raise the being that we now have in our care. And so we rush to do that. And with this, gentle parenting, compassionate parenting, way of knowing we want to parent combined with our early experiences where maybe we felt at extremes on the continuum, abandoned, unloved, or maybe we just felt unseen, unknown, which by the way, is still really, really impactful and can affect you through life. Because remember, you're hardwired to feel connected. So if you feel unknown, you are going to carry a wound in you around that. And so you're sort of going, entering the trenches, going like, I'm not going to create that wound back. Like, I'm not going to do that. Right. And so if we have this movement and then we have this, I'm not going to create this wound and we collide them from many people, even sometimes people who ascribe to being referred to as experts, this idea of no boundaries is kind of getting birthed out as though that's the way. And the way I like to refer to that is this difference between connected yet separate versus connected and extent and an extension or connected in proximity. So we've come to think that the way our children feel connected is if we're aligned, my needs and your needs. So going back to my example with my daughter, she, her needs were staying up. My needs were going to bed in this model. What's happened. We're not realizing it, but it's almost as though my child's only going to feel connected. If I align with her, if I'm like, okay, you want to stay in the fort for another hour. Cool, cool. Let's stay in the fort for another hour. That that's how they feel understood. No, their boundaries and connected yet separate. So not connected yet, but an extension are really important. So in the 1950s, 
Donald Winnicott, a prominent pediatrician and psychoanalyst, had coined this term maternal preoccupation. He referred to how in the really early days, and many, many mothers who listen to this podcast may resonate with this, feel like preoccupied with their baby. It's like a vacuum, like it sucks you in. And everything else is pushed away, yourself, your needs, your and you're just hyper pulled in to your baby. And that's supposed to happen. Then he talks about this developmental phase of transition where he refers to as failures. He uses that term and how we're supposed to begin to fail. Actually, we're supposed to. We're supposed to create space. And the space we create is the evolution. You said, you know, I'm still in my phases of development as a mother. So am I. And I always will be. And so are you because motherhood are developmental phases, just like life. And so you develop separation, you develop space. And in that space, the child's true self can form. So going back to the beginning of the podcast, when we talked about these are coping strategies to connect attachment. If the only way I can connect to you is by you know meeting your needs and being a good kid, then that's what I'm going to do. But that's not my true self. So actually, these boundaries or failures or moments of separation, me and you are separate beings and we can still be connected, are crucial. These ruptures and repairs, these are moments that the child learns trust. They learn you are a separate mind to me. You have separate feelings to me. They learn agency, right? My daughter going, no, I want to stay. They learn protest. They learn I get to express my needs. They learn emotion regulation. They learn so much. So gentle, compassionate parenting is not parenting without boundaries and really shouldn't be. That would mean a whole host of things that is not what we want it to be. I'm, I know I will need to come back and listen to this again because it's it's really big in the sense of acknowledging we cannot meet all of our child's needs, that we do need to have those moments of failures to create that separation and the autonomy. And we want our children to develop that because that builds the identity and the healthy self and the what do I like and what do I need? And I'm thinking of your example last night, your daughter was able to say like, no, you're not going to bed. Uh, this is what I'm doing, right? <laughs> um, and how powerful that is. And then again, that relational, so putting that back together with the relational piece then of you then, oh, okay, clicking in. But having the boundaries in there, there are still boundaries. You're not going to be playing for it for another hour or two. Um, right, right. So it became a negotiation, right? You're, which is what relationships are. Your yeah. needs and my needs are separate. We are two separate beings. You want me to stay up, I want to sleep. I see your mind. This is my mind. This is what we teach in positive communication with couples, for example. Mm-hmm. This is how I feel. This is how you feel. What are we going to do about it? And that was essentially what I did. You want to play all night. I want to sleep. Why don't we brush your teeth and do some of our bedtime routines in the fort? And then we're going to bed. Then we're going to bed, right? Not then we're in the fort forever. But I see your mind so the child feels understood. And this gets really important as we're heading into, you know, back to school season, because this comes up all the time with, you know, school drop-offs, for example, and the child is screaming at the gate and is screaming at the gate, meaning they're not what connected to you or they're not attached to you. What parents come in to see me about that all the time. No, that's just their 
attachment system saying, you're my safe base. You are my secure base. I need you. You're leaving. Ah. But if we're parenting by extension and we're going, oh God, they're feeling abandoned because I used to feel abandoned. And so I stand at the gate and I hold them or I say, forget it. You could come home with me. That's first of all, not their separateness. They are meant to say, no, I don't want you to leave me, but they need you to be the confident, calm, trusting other that goes, we're okay. Like, here's a way we're going to cope with this separation. Not there is no boundary, not there is no separation. How are we going to do it? I have a box of um, temporary tattoos in my house. And in the early mornings of separations, I tattoo my wrist or my palm and they tattoo theirs. And then I kiss their tattoo and they kiss my tattoo. And we have the kisses with us all day. So you come up with it. You don't have to do that one, your creative way. And you might remind them of your creative way, but the boundary is still there. I know you're scared to say goodbye to me. I'm going to miss you too. I'm also sad, but it's not, I know you feel you're getting abandoned by me and oh my gosh, so I'm going to stay. It's now we're going to go though. I love you. Gotta go. Got my tattoo. You've got yours. Bye. I'm thinking of the the essence at the core of what my book is about, which is about building interdependence in our relationships, how we are fused together with our partners. And we think what's in my mind is in your mind. And when I consult with colleagues, when we're doing our couples consultation, a lot of us were coming to this conversation around, right, they're, they're trying to come at something from very different ways, but they can't see that the other person's end goal is the same, which is to be connected, to feel safe in this relationship. But they're viewing the behavior this way and the other person's viewing it that way. And and we don't, how did you say that? What's in my, what's in the other's mind? Like, can I think of, because I, I say self-other. Like I hold like, your mind in my mind. I hold your you mind hold in my mind. mind in your mind. But we are separate minds. We're right? separate minds. We're two separate people. And we're not supposed to be the same. And and that is the essence of what you're saying, that we're trying to help our children is to separate and and have that separate mind. So then they can do that going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when people say, so then how do I do this gentle parenting thing? How do I do this separate yet connected yet separate as opposed to connected as an extension stuff? Well, we do that by this meta term called mentalization, but it really means the whyness of minds, the understanding, the your own thoughts, beliefs, intentions, feelings, and the whys of your child's and constantly attempting, whether it's in, you know, your script that you learned, I can see you're sad and you don't want to go to bed or whether it's in your repair moment. Yeah, I did leave you in the car and mommy had to go inside. Because you can't see in the car all day and I can see you felt sad that I left you in the car and I can hear that, right? So we're constantly showing a curiosity of minds. And what we're constantly doing when we do that is we are showing this difference. My mind and your mind are separate and that's okay. We can still be connected. And it's funny, I want to self-correct. I've used the word constantly and actually I have a really big thing that I always say it's consistency over constancy. And so it's not constantly just to correct it. We aren't doing this all the time at all. Actually, We are doing it consistently over time, not constantly. So 
the science even really does back that up. It's millisecond to millisecond to millisecond that in re- relational dynamics are happening and your child is extracting in a parent-child relationship from all those milliseconds. It's making like a summary. And so no given moment for so the gentle parenting, compassionate parenting does not happen all the time because no given moment is used. No single behavior is used as an attachment paradigm. It's multiple milliseconds of moments. It's so many of them that are collected. And so it's consistently, like in general, this is what I ascribe to do. Not all the time, at all. And to connect that to our romantic partnerships, that again, it's not a a demand or a constant or you do not, it's not possible to meet every single one of your partner's needs at the exact moment that they need it. And the same has to go for us. We can't expect our partner to meet every single one of our needs in that exact moment, but rather it's that negotiation of how are we then going to get to that place where I can share my need and you can respond to it. Um, I think of uh, lots of examples are going through my head, but even one night I remember Greg saying, we need to talk about this piece about around work. And my thoughts were, um, I absolutely cannot. And is, is our business on fire? And if it is, let's talk about it. But if it's not, then I need to say, let's park this for tomorrow because it's just been a day. I've been in my stuff. And he's like, okay, <laughs> I could see it was so hard for him to do that and to hold it back but that we did come together the next day and work through it. And it is that ebbing and flowing. Um, One more piece here, because we haven't said it explicitly, but I know you're talking about it, which is, and it's Donald Winnicott who talks about the good enough mother. And so what I described a little earlier when I talked about how Donald Winnicott talks initially about this um, eternal preoccupation and then says, over time, you create this space and you're not responding in exactly what you just talked about, Tracy, in couples, in exactness, your needs immediate, I meet them, or let alone I anticipate them. I start to create space I, from those needs. I'm inexact. I am, and he used, as I said, the word failing. And so really where the term good enough mother comes from is Donald Winnicott. And it is from this part that I said before, actually. So it is from this idea, we hear good enough as a settling sometimes, going back to that semantics use, just like gentle parenting, that actually is not. It's really the meaning of good enough because you are exact, inexact. You are not good. You're good enough as one wants to be because there's space and room and those failures and those mismatches and those ruptures, whatever term sits in your body better, are needed. They're needed to develop a sense of you and me are separate, of you and me can move through hard things together. So there's that sentence, we go through hard things that's really well known. And I always say, I got to add a word. It's we go through hard things together. And so when we move through these mismatches, when we move through these moments where your needs and mine are separate and there's a tension, what we learn is we're not alone because if we move through it, we move from positive to negative to positive emotion, we heal together. And so we get this experience of not aloneness and of what he referred to Donald Winnicott as 
going on being, continuing to exist. We don't get destroyed by those mismatches or failures. We survive and that's huge, but we survive because we're not alone. We survive because we do it together. And that's what the attachment relationship is really about. (sighs) Dr. Tanya, I'm so grateful to be sitting with you today. And there's just so much. uh, And I, I have felt this listening to you talk before. There's, I know there's so much more that we could be talking about. And you and I come from very similar approaches. We both researched attachment theory within our PhDs. And I know our frameworks, the way we work with clients is similar. Tell, tell everyone what you have going on and where they might connect with you more. Because I know you're working on some exciting things. I also know you have a beautiful new clinic in Toronto. Thank you, Tracy. So yes, I do have a, a clinic in Toronto. It's Renny, R-E-N-N-I. It's not a name. We're often asked that. It is basically everything we've been talking about today. It is the reflection of inner. It's the word inner backwards. So it is, I see you. And through me seeing you, you come to see yourself. And so that's where the name comes from. We are an integrative health clinic. So massage, acupuncture, yoga, and therapy. And really do focus on attachment and these sometimes attachment wounds that impact us or live in our bodies. And we are all trained to work from that standpoint, from couples to children to adults. I continue to do my practice and run workshops. And I'm also, you know, with a hundred hats, taking my hat off to you, who just wrote your amazing book. And I am so inspired by it because I know just what a big deal it is to do that, especially post PhD. and post writing a PhD thesis. (laughs) And I myself am working on a manuscript that I am just getting ready to query. And so I'm really excited about that as well. Oh, I'm so excited. And what is the topic of your manuscript? Well, I think it's really fitting to what we're talking about today, because it's really unlike all the plethora of how-to guides to parenting, which is what a lot of us have seen and read and rely on, I think it covers instead this more unexplored territory of maternal mental health and how it that sort of interplay in perinatal mental health with that attachment, childhood wounds, the things we carry with us. And I follow or the book weaves together the captivating stories of a number of my clients, as well as myself. And I really explore both the science and the theory and the practical clinical in that way. I love that. Oh, I cannot wait to see that into the world. And I'm so excited for you to be writing. As a colleague had said to me, as PhDs, if we're writing again, it means we are over the trauma of the dissertation (laughs) and finding joy (laughs) in creativity, which is so powerful. And also the storytelling. I don't know about you. Well, I do know you and I have talked about this in, in our DMs, but just the experience of what it means to be a therapist and to share our stories, our own even personal story and how different that is than what psychologists, therapists were doing 60 years ago. So I can't wait to hear your story and the story of your clients. Dr. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Dr. Tracy. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for the care from a licensed mental health care provider. See you next week.
What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.